Welcome to Kyperian Commentary. This is episode 56. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. And in this episode, I have with me Mr. Sean Johnson. Sean is the reviews editor for Forma, and he's a teacher at Trinitas Christian School and also a contributor to Kyperian Commentary. And I have him here in my studio. Sean, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing well. Wonderful to have you. And I want to talk about an article that you wrote for Forma. But before I give you that platform, I want you to talk about Forma itself so that our listeners can have a general idea what that is. Yeah, that'd be my pleasure. Um, Forma Journal is a publication, an online and print publication by the Circe Institute, okay. which is an institute uh, for classical educators and uh, for discussing all things classical. And Forma looks to take the the interests of the classical educator and the classically educated and push them into the other areas of life. Mm -hmm. So even the tagline for the journal is classical thought for contemporary culture. Mm. Uh, And so we're interested in how studying uh, the classics, classic literature, uh, theology, philosophy, uh, how that can carry over into then the a vision for everyday life in other areas. Right. Okay. Well, that sounds like a wonderful platform there. I, I want to talk about this article. Are the culinary arts liberal arts? Mainly because this is so delicious to talk about. <laughs> but I want to just give some preliminary work here. I think there, perhaps most of our listeners at Kyperian are familiar with the liberal arts. What do you mean by the liberal arts? That's a kind of a catchphrase that's been heard quite a bit these days. What do you mean by that? Sure. And that's an important question, too, because it's a it's a phrase that's thrown around uh, pretty cheaply these days. Uh, Most of the time when you hear it, someone's telling you about the liberal arts degree they got in college. (laughs) And what that means is I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I took a lot of English classes. (laughs) Uh, But historically, the liberal arts are the name that refers collectively to seven arts in particular, uh, grammar and logic and rhetoric. People associated with any kind of classical education are probably familiar with those because usually those three arts are mapped over the uh, stages of development in, in child's uh, in children's um, psychology and, and maturity. Uh, and then you have music and astronomy and geometry and arithmetic uh, are the, the 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 last four that round out those seven liberal arts. Uh, and historically, when, at the height of their uh, appreciation and popularity, these seven arts were compared to the seven pillars of wisdom. Mm-hmm. They were seen as the core curriculum uh, of a complete human education. Okay. Okay. So as we delve into your your piece at forma the you begin right where all good theologizing begins which is in (laughs) genesis chapter one where do we connect the creation account with food and so where does this desire to pursue culinary the art of food making food make however you want to phrase it how does that tie in with that initial and principial uh, imperative that God gives us to have dominion over all things. Right. So in the article, uh, 
I look at what's happening between God and Adam uh, in the creation account. And the first thing that God offers to Adam uh, is all of this food to sustain him while he does this colossal job that he's just been given. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I'm, I love to cook and I, I, I am always thinking about the different things you can do with food and the, the myriad combinations that you can come up with that combine different kinds of raw ingredients to make something new. Uh, and that struck me as uh, the very thing that God had just done before he gives this great gift to Adam. Uh, he had created the world without form and void, and then from those raw ingredients, shaped it as an artist or as a craftsman. Uh, and so then he gives to Adam a little uh, practice kit almost. Oh. <laughs> uh, you're going to have to do what I just did. You're going to have to take these raw ingredients uh, and make the world into something richer than it is now. And here, here's some some berries and some, <laughs> and, right. some and some uh, leaves, and we'll see what you can make of that first. The world's first uh, fruit salad was uh, inevitably <laughs> put together in the Garden of Eden. Right. I, I'm curious um, about uh, about food beyond the, the consumption dimension of it, and so I'm always curious when people who find so much interest in making food and delighting in food. I'm interested in hearing the journey behind that. Tell us, you, you talk a little bit about this in the article. It was uh, fascinating, it caught my attention. But share with our listeners, please, um, what was your uh, initial um, initial taste of food and how that became a part of the things that you appreciate so much today? Right. Uh, well, in the article, I also talk about the fact that the one of the reasons the liberal arts are were called liberal, it's not because Democrats like them, <laughs> right. uh, but because liberal comes from the Latin word for free or freedom uh-huh. and a free man, a man who wasn't burdened by the drudgery of slave work. Uh, he was the kind of man that would get a liberal education and his life was the kind of life that a liberal education would prepare you for, for, for governing and for the, the kind of uh, leadership that would require uh, familiarity with the liberal arts. And so the liberal arts are also referred to kind of colloquially as the liberating arts, okay. uh, they they liberate your thinking and uh, they they make a free man right. out of you, uh, and so they unshackle you. They unshackle you, and so I, I relate this uh, experience in my own life where cooking, uh, and uh, I discovered a love for cooking in the process of cooking, sort of opening up this new freedom for me. I was. Uh, an only child, and uh, my parents were divorced when I was young, and so my mother had to work a lot. She put me through classical school or Christian school uh, all my life, and it took a lot of labor on her part, and that meant some late nights when I was at home, latchkey kid, with no one to cook for me. I ate a lot of frozen dinners out of boxes. (laughs) Uh, But there was one day, it must have been a summer day, I was home from school, and I just, I had a hankering for uh, mashed potatoes. Uh, yeah. uh, I don't know where it came from. Yeah. I watched a lot of Julia Child reruns <laughs> on TV. And so it, uh, I put the two together. You know what? I I think I could make that. If yeah. I want that, that's what people do, right? If they want some food, they can make right, the food. Right. So I, I dug the potatoes out and I, I messed up every dish in the house. And <laughs> and uh, it was it was chaos when my mother finally got home. But 
I found a recipe and I spent the whole day um, making mashed potatoes. And the feeling after having uh, successfully created mashed potatoes, drawn together these raw ingredients, hovered over them like the spirit hovering over the waters. Uh, and I'm sure they weren't actually very good, but in my memory, they were, they tasted amazing. Um, and it was, it was a liberating feeling. Uh, it was uh, the feeling of being human in the way Adam must have felt human, being able to pour your work into the, the materials of the earth and produce something new. Right. And we also get um, a very distinct impression that even when food is tasted and, and talked about and concerned about in post-fall, I'm not aware, and maybe you can correct me, I'll be a very humble pastor if you do, <laughs> but I'm not aware of any particular occasions where food tasted bad or where food was given and a, a poor connotation was given to it. There, there's, also, there's abuse, there's gluttony and all that. Right. But in the common day to day expression, there isn't a sense of, well, this is part of the fallen nature of man, therefore he won't taste. Now, we don't know, of course, how food tasted, or how <laughs> fruits or herbs, how these things tasted before the fall. You follow my, my direction here? I do. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, in light of that is, does God cook? <laughs> yeah, well, I think uh, uh, I think we have a, a common love for uh Robert Capon, uh, in his book, The Supper of the Lamb. And there's a line in there where he uh, argues that, um, and I've heard this argument uh, in other places as well, that uh, the miracle that Jesus performs in turning the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana uh, is really just a miracle of speeding up time mm. that he has built into the mechanics of the world, uh, this natural innate ability in in the grapevine to draw up water from the earth and uh, within itself turn that substance into uh, into wine. Mm. And so in, in some ways that there are those kinds of um, processes where uh, God performs all kinds of cooking miracles all the time. Uh, right? He makes fermentation possible right, and, right. and cheese and beer and wine. Uh, but then certainly in, uh, to make the uh, to draw the analogy, um, God is always drawing together disparate materials and um, producing something new and good. I mean, the, the church uh, is maybe the, the chief example of that thing. Right, right. The church could be seen as a, a kind of a cook production. After all, the entire Levitical system is based <laughs> on it. The church is the fulfillment of Levitical sacrificial system. The church is deeply embedded in the business of making food right yeah most of the priestly instructions are cooking instructions, cooking instructions. <laughs> Here, here's yeah. what so uh, what to do and what not to do with the food as most americans love food perhaps a little bit too much of the wrong kinds <laughs> they should take some love in the uh, the priestly offerings and the smells and the incense and all those things that right uh, are part of that exercise you write, uh, Sean, every time we cook and eat in earnest, we are invited forward into the meal of that everlasting day when our humanity will be fully realized and all manner of things shall be well. I love that language. I love that um, that statement there, which in my estimation, I think you've touched on this very briefly, but there is an eschatological dimension to food mm -hmm. that 
ought to be a part of every taste. We may not be self-conscious about tasting food on a regular basis in our two, three, four, five meals a day. But I want you to talk just a little about the fact that, or at least elaborate a bit on the fact that when we taste food, we are participating in the eschaton. Can you develop <laughs> that just a little bit? Uh, well, God puts it in those terms. We, right. we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, that the language used to uh, describe the ultimate unending day uh, in which we will live in the light of, of God for eternity is described with the language of a meal and of feasting. Uh, and you, you get this idea, too, of food that isn't required for merely for sustenance and right? that uh, that there's something about tasting and enjoying and seeing that the Lord is good uh, that isn't necessary uh, food doesn't have to didn't have to taste good right, uh, right you could you could imagine a pragmatic universe in which God gave us uh, gray styrofoam and, right. and we ate it and it kept our bellies full uh, but the fact that food can taste good, that in itself seems to point toward uh, something, um, some crowning reality that we're looking forward to, where uh, we, we, don't, uh, we don't live and function merely for pragmatic uh, reasons. Mm. And it's complex, right? I mean, you, as you mentioned, you're in the, what I will henceforth call the potato argument. <laughs> you mixed a couple of ingredients, added a little seasoning, before you had something that was much tastier than perhaps something that could have been uh, frozen in microwave. Yeah, and even even those ingredients, if you bite into a potato, and everybody has some uncle who, who does that for the shock factor, <laughs> but uh, raw potatoes aren't that great. Uh, they could sustain you too, but, yes, they <laughs> but they're not enjoyable. Uh, but cooking is this kind of miracle of alchemy where you combine these ingredients and get something that is greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, and that's certainly the future that the church looks forward to as well. We and ourselves uh, don't constitute something very interesting or impressive, uh, but God draws us together and through the working of the spirit produces something uh, greater than the sum of the parts. Right, right. Well, I've, I've learned so much from you on this on this issue here. And there is, there is indeed a, a uh, what do the kids call it these days? A, a foodie culture, a... Uh, <laughs> And um, I think there is a, a renewed interest in food and there, because the Bible is so holistic in its dimension and its expression, at some time, the things the Bible talks about will eventually become popular in culture, <laughs> right? Food, um, <laughs> consumption, desires, they'll become popular in culture. So I think it's our duty not to chastise the emphasis that our modern culture puts on those things that are inherently biblical, yeah. but direct that orientation, a desire to how it ought to be properly used, right? Right. I think if you look at the culture at large, the a lot of craftsmanship is being lost. Mm. Uh, trades that require skilled work with the hands are you know, disappearing or being de-emphasized. Uh, and so it, maybe it's just a natural outworking of that, that cooking emerges as something that is a little more approachable for every person, especially right. the person who spends most of, you know, eight hours in front of a computer feeling like they produce nothing really. 
Uh, they're not doing Adamic work. Uh, right, right. And so that this is the the side effect of that. I think we should be grateful for because it is uh, uh, providentially it's a it's a very biblical one and one that yeah we can if we encourage in the right direction in the right ways I think can be really fruitful. Right, right. So I, I think a lot about elitism in our culture and the kinds of things that make human beings prideful. As Augustine said, the first thing that overcame man will be the last thing he'll overcome. <laughs> I think that's just a part of who we are. Uh, food can become one of them. And when I think of an elitist, in, uh, there are various definitions I looked at today, and I couldn't find one that was deeply satisfying. So the one <laughs> I came up with one. And it seems to me that an elitist is somebody who will not entertain the question of an honest inquiry. So somebody asks a very basic question about food, and you have you who have already developed a fine taste for food and have made delicious food. If you say that is too infantile <laughs> or too principial, um, that would strike me as an elitist. Right. You know, you see what I'm saying? Yep. So help me think through this issue here. How do you dare enter into the world of a food amateur and novice and attempt to persuade them to view food more than an exercise in consumption. Hmm. Uh, I think too that part of elitism is also uh, believing dogmatically that your personal standard or even maybe just your personal idea of what is best and possible uh, is necessary for everyone else uh, to live by. Uh, and so a lot of times those standards are based upon experience. Uh, if, uh, if I, if I have, you know, had some $500 bottle of wine and it was amazing and mind blowing and life changing, then of course I'm going to, part of me is going to compare every other sip of wine to that, to that one. Uh, but if I'm talking to someone who uh, is entering into the world of wine enjoyment for the first time, uh, and they've got a budget of twenty dollars. I'm not going to say, "Well, don't even, don't even bother," right? Because you can't have the Chateau de Fontainebleau. <laughs> so, uh, so I think it's it's that it's uh, God gives us these things uh, because they are good, and uh, it's sort of slowly following what is what is good and enjoyable, and you can kind of uh, find your own ceiling and threshold. Uh, and that matures with experience too. Uh, some of the best cheese I've ever tasted, mm. I um, would have turned my nose up at, you know, 20 years ago, uh, because uh, not because it looked weird or smelled weird, but because when I put it in my mouth, I didn't like it. <laughs> it didn't taste good. Um, but you know, you train your tastes, and um, and it's a thing that takes patience and uh, uh, just a. a desire to continue to grow in, in what you uh, appreciate. I think that's a wonderful segue into a conversation that I would wish to see happening in household um, between parents and among families, among families in general. And that's a conversation about developing the taste buds of our children. You mentioned, I, I would suspect if somebody gave you a fine meal at the age of uh, five, you probably wouldn't have known the difference because your taste buds are not developed the difference between that and a, a fine frozen meal <laughs> but yet those initial stages are very important to develop good habits and all of that 
how do you as a father begin to instill a good sense of what is good in food so that children don't um, grow up thinking that all food is created equal? <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, we do a number of things. My wife and I have tried to be somewhat intentional about uh-huh. that. Uh, one is we have this kind of spoken liturgy uh, that we insist upon. Ooh, uh, children are never allowed to say, I don't like a thing. Okay. Uh, we, the phrase that we have is X or Y is not my favorite. Okay. Uh, and we have lots of conversations around the fact that uh, that may not always be the case. Uh-huh. Uh, and so you, and just because you pronounce that something isn't your favorite, doesn't mean you don't have to eat it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so that's one of the principles is, uh, you know, without force feeding our children, uh, and without forcing them to eat, you know, uh, uh, two pounds of something that they really don't enjoy, uh, you, everyone at the table must try everything. Uh, you can't look at a thing and say, "I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to taste that. I don't right. want to touch that." Uh, and you must try it over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you try it and don't like it, the next time it's on the dinner plate, mm-hmm. you're going to try it again, mm-hmm. um, and then. Two, trying to talk uh, up front about the fact that not all food is created equal um, and that that can be a positive thing as well. That uh, uh, Capon, again, he uses the distinction between festial or festive eating and ferial eating. Uh, there are these uh, seasons of high eating and rich eating, and then there are these seasons of, you know, uh, penitential eating, <laughs> poor eating. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, a, a dinner of lentils is, uh, might be par for the course on a Tuesday yeah. night. Yeah. And that that's okay, that you also don't have to eat like a king Monday through Saturday. But the, when the Sabbath comes around, we also make a point of trying to fix a, a wonderful meal, a better than average meal, right. uh, so that they know that there is, um, that is in itself can be an antidote against snobbery or, or elitism mm-hmm. uh, that just because something amazing is possible it doesn't have to be uh, what I what I need or require every day mm-hmm. uh, and so we, we we do a lot of that and then we try and um, always uh, offer our children things that are going to stretch them a little bit right right I would love to have a, a another conversation if our listeners are interested in a conversation about hospitality which I think is a um, very important issue when it comes to food because I do think what we're trying what we're not trying to say is that only the spectacular has a role in the Christian experience right, right? And these things take time and uh, sometimes the the mundane and the common um, would you even add the pragmatic food has a role in hospitality absolutely mm-hmm. so uh, my question is since both of us are very uh, attuned to the seasons of the church and I think the church calendar has a, a gigantic role to play in foods and how we develop a taste for that. We are in a penitential season, <laughs> and uh, w- which is punctuated by Sundays of feasting. But generally, if you want to be faithful to that season, you know you, we are eating in some ways penitentially. But we're approaching the most festive season of the year. So because I know you very, very well, talk a little bit about um, maybe a couple of experiences you've had, Sean, about the role of food in, in Easter celebrations. <laughs> if you just elaborate a little bit on that. 
Sure. Well, and and that even is relevant to conversations we have with our children as well. Um, the you know, the eighth time we have lentils in Lent, yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. they might begin to ask, "Whoa, when is Easter?" <laughs> and uh, and the you know the answer is it's soon. And and that's right. We're looking forward to this time. And so now they even unbidden will ask, "Ooh, hey, uh, it's been a long time since we had." Mom made this kind of cake. Easter's coming up. We should have that cake uh-huh. at Easter time. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it's definitely uh, this intentional planned contrast. Yes, we're eating a lot of simple fare now, uh, but it's in preparation for, or we're, we're nevertheless looking forward to in, in, uh, anxi- or in anxiety and in hope uh, to this grand Easter feast. And so we uh, make a point of um, the last couple of years, we've gotten together with several other families in the church uh, and blown the doors off, Uh, even turn it into a kind of competition where everybody, uh, everybody pulls out their, every trick they've got up their sleeve and uh, everyone tries to outdo one another um, so that it's, it's a, a meal worthy of the occasion. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Johnson uh, writes for Forma. He is also the reviews editor, and he's the author of Are the Culinary Arts Liberal Arts in Forma, which we'll make available to our readers at Hyperion Commentary. Sean, uh, after this conversation, I'm very, look, I'm very much looking forward to sharing bread and wine with you. Thanks for your time, brother. Likewise. Thank you.